Hello and welcome to a time of edification with Caruso Ministry. Get ready to be edified and equipped to edify others. Ready? Let's begin. So, tongues by the Spirit. Now, before we start, I just want to say something. I just want to say something that I noticed, and I, I, I believe that we can get better at, right, as a, as a ministry, as a discipleship class. Now, um, I, I noticed, now let me just start from here. There is a way you can get very familiar with scripture truth, or there's a way you can get very familiar with God's word or with revelation knowledge. And you do not realize how much of a blessing it could be, or it is actually. There's a way you can get very familiar with, you know, your God's word being taught in accuracy, you know, being taught in details, um, paying attention to, you know, certain, you know, nuances in grammar, so on and so forth. There's a way you can just get very used to it, that it doesn't really do anything to you anymore. All right. And so you have to learn as a student of God's word to be intentionally full of honor for God's word. It's actually something you have to train you have to do. That it don't matter how long I've been exposed to God's word or how long I have known God's word, I am always going to esteem God's word as powerful, as supernatural. Now, why did I say this? I, I, I tell you because um, I noticed something. And one of the things I noticed was that um, oftentimes, after we have maybe a teaching or we have you know a meeting or something like that, I oftentimes notice that folks who probably like reach out to me to say, "Oh, they were, um, oh, I was blessed by the meeting, so on and so forth." Oftentimes, are folks who are not a part of the discipleship school, like are not part of the discipleship class or stuff. They usually the folks who reach back out to say, "Oh, I was blessed," you know, this and that, and so on and so forth, right? And now, I mean, this is not, it's not the first time, it's not, it's not been for a while now, all right? And what I could just see is that sometimes knowing it or knowing it, I mean, this happens to a lot of us, actually. Um, knowing it or knowing it, you can just become very used to something that you do not realize how much of a blessing it is, all right? So it's not so much about, you know, in that sense, giving feedback about the teaching and saying why oh, I was blessed. No, it's actually more about how much you esteem it as something that is spectacular, or better still, as something that is supernatural. All right, how much it actually matters to you as something that is powerful. You need to realize that you know, thank God for the truth of God, or thank God for exposure to God's word. But what you have, all right, or what you are receiving in that sense. Is something that is not also common. Now, it's not supposed to be that way, but that is the truth. All right. And so you have to know the first thing to know when it comes to, you know, working in the supernatural life you have, or working in things supernatural or spiritual, is that is that you have to first of all esteem it as spiritual. You have to first of all esteem it as supernatural. You have to first of all know that what you have or that which you have received is not ordinary. It's not something you just easily find just anywhere. That's the first thing to note, all right. And so I want you, to, I want it to be something that you pay attention to consciously, all right. Consciously decide to constantly esteem God's word, all right. And learn to also adopt that culture. It's something I do personally. Do you understand? 
when I, you know, I'm under, when I'm blessed by ministrations, I consciously decide to reach out to people and tell them, oh, I was blessed. Thank you very much. Now, this is not just even the pastor or the person that taught God's word. Sometimes the ministration, maybe someone, you know, sang this song that really blessed me. I always do well to reach out to the person and tell the person, thank you so much. You know, thank you so much for that. I was really blessed by that. So on and so forth. That is good Christian culture. It's a culture that it's not just about the nouns. It's a culture that we must emulate. I told you guys before that culture is defined by people. It's a culture that we must emulate, and so that when we do it, others can learn from it. In fact, I'm going to say something. Um, the, the teaching of supernaturalness of speaking was actually um, inspired by a teaching I had, by a teaching that was done not by me, all right, by someone I consider a senior colleague or a senior friend in while I was in the university, actually. The teaching was done in my 400 level by Bro Ivy Usola, right? And the teaching was in my heart and in my mouth, right? And he taught that while I was in my 400 level. And in fact, that was, it was in that meeting that the phrase supernaturalness of speaking came to my heart. So in that meeting, I've told you guys about how that topic in my heart for a very long time. Now, I made sure that I reached out to him to tell him. Now, of course, if I don't tell him, he's not going to know. I mean, it doesn't really matter or anything. But I, I took it as a duty to let him know that what you did a couple of years ago, now, I, I mean, that's about, right now, about oh, about three to four years ago, right? About three to four years ago. I have to tell him that that teaching you did actually bettered something in me. And not just did something in me. I mean, my ministry is a blessing because of it. And a lot of people are going to be blessed as well because of it. You understand me? So those things are actually good Christian culture. All right? Good Christian culture. When someone blesses you, when someone gives a word of knowledge, so for example, you don't, um, your, 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 in that sense, let me put it this way, your reluctance to show that you are the person, probably because of how serious the condition is, should not be as much as your willingness to encourage that person through the things of the spirit better. So while on one hand you might not, you know, you might be a bit reluctant to want to identify yourself, probably because the condition sounds, you know, somehow and so on and so on. And that's why personally, when I give words of knowledge that are a bit um, personal, I don't tell people to come out or to raise their hands and so on and so forth. But you must learn to, if, if for any reason, I mean, if it's not a personal issue now, right? And then the person says, you know, raise your hands, indicate yourself or something like that. Be interested, you understand, in raising hands, in indicating yourself. That feeling of maybe, I don't know, discomfort that you have when you raise your hand should not be as much as the willingness to want to force someone to flow the things of the spirit again. It's one of the reasons why, when, for example, we are told to maybe hold hands and bless our partners, when I stand with people and they give words of knowledge, I do my best possible to put my heart in such a posture that. I can help the person be more effective with the things of the spirit. Anybody who has told the things of the spirit for a while will know that there is a way you can flow easily when the person to whom you are blessing is very receptive. And so personally, when, for example, someone gives me a word of knowledge and tells me so on and so forth and so on, I'm not quick to say it's not true. I don't know. There are some believers that are just that way. On faith, on faith. They are just always, they just always want to be quick to force the things of the spirit. If someone says something about maybe your family before you even think through it, you already say, Ah, it's not true, it's not true, it's not that. No, that's wrong, that's wrong. And a lot of times, I've had experiences, or quite a number of times, I've had experiences where I told someone something 
about your family. It, at that point in time, they said, ah, they can't remember. And then a couple of maybe days or weeks after, they reach back out, they reach back to me and say, oh, this and this and this that you said is true. This and this that you said. In fact, one of the words of knowledge I gave yesterday, or was it yesterday now? Oh, sorry, on Friday in our meeting. Someone, the person who the word of knowledge for was streaming the meeting at that point in time. So she reached back to me, I think, yesterday and said, this so and so word of knowledge you gave was actually for me. Imagine. So gave you now is it is very it's possible that if I you know I'm not funny things, I didn't even know that the person I gave the word, word of knowledge for was online. I might just give the word of knowledge normally. Do you understand? Now it's possible that I would have said, um, if you are that person, maybe come out and then possibly nobody comes out, and then I now maybe feel ah, maybe this word, maybe it wasn't true or something like that. Now imagine what would have happened if that person later did not now reach out now of course i mean i've said before that you shouldn't feel bad about whether or not people respond when it comes to the things of the spirit oftentimes i'm not i've learned from experience not to base the accuracy of words of knowledge to whether or not people respond that's the truth but the point still remains that your willingness all right your um activity the way you respond to the things of the spirit can be a very big determinant in whether or not someone who is throwing the things of the spirit towards you will continue and do it better. So you have to intentionally let people know. When someone gives you a word of knowledge and blesses you, when someone gives you a word of direction, learn to reach back out. Just that, don't, it doesn't cost you anything to say, oh, thank you so much, I was blessed by that. Thank you so much, so and so, so and this. Oftentimes, that is a determinant. Oftentimes, that's what people will need for the next time they're going to give you a word of knowledge. By that, they remember that, oh, the last time I gave you, it was actually right. Just that, I didn't make a mistake, I can go again. So that's good Christian culture, right? So I want us to be more intentional about it. Not just here within charisma ministry, wherever you get blessed in God's word. When someone blesses you with God's word, learn to respond. Learn to let the person know. Thank you, sir, for blessing me with God's word. Jonathan, when someone gives you a word of knowledge or something like that in your direction, learn to respond. All right? Be that way. Let it just be that way. Let it be a culture that you build in yourself. And as I always say, when people see culture, naturally, when people are People respond to things they see. So when they see that that's how you do, naturally they'll be inclined to behave that way. All right? So that's just that, by the way. All right? So I hope that we get to work on that better. So, tongues by the Spirit. Tongues by the Spirit. Um, last week, we started a preamble. All right? A preamble, sort of, on that, on the topic, tongues by the Spirit. And what we tried to do, Last week was we did some examination of second second Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen to seventeen, and then also Matthew twenty eight and verse nineteen. And one and the fundamental thing we established from second Timothy three from verse sixteen is that in the teaching of God's word, where it says um, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. Please you can open your Bibles there. All right, I'm not opening it because we have looked into it already. And of course, I mean this goes without saying that um, I expect that you have your Bible with you, your pen, and your notes with you wherever you are, so that you can write effectively, right? So you can take notes, can pay attention. It goes without saying, you shouldn't be pressing your phone right now. You shouldn't be uploading what articles or even chatting at all or anything. If you are, maybe that's a word of knowledge for you. Drop it, right? And pay attention to God's word. All right, so let's continue. All right, so we saw second major three, second major three from verse 16 to 17. Where it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. He said it's profitable for doctrine. The word doctrine there referring to teaching, the daskalia. All right. We said doctrine 
for reproof, evidence. And so we said, when you come to learn God's word, one of the things that you expect to have is uh, is provision of details or um, the access to new information. That's one of the things that you know, God's word um, has to do with. When you come to learn God's word, one of the things that you expect is that you receive new information. Okay, I told you guys that even though spiritual growth is fundamentally, you know, even though spiritual growth is about increasing in depth and conviction in the truth of God's word, the reality of it is there first has to be an introduction of an information or of the right information, then you cannot begin to grow depth in it. So the first thing about spiritual growth is that there is entrance or there's provision of new information. Provision of new information. All right. Now, after that, then what do you have? It says reproof for evidence. All right, evidence. And in evidence, I said, what you do with evidence is you have more information about what you know. So after you've received new information, then you now begin to grow depth in that information you have. So you have evidence, elekos, all right? More evidence, more information, you know, more um, more depth, more conviction in what you know, all right? Then we continue, we say it is also for correction. And I told you, I said, a key part of learning God's word is that you be corrected. If you don't want to be corrected in God's word, don't bother learning God's word. You know, it's interesting that we have a lot of people who want to learn God's word, but also do things their way. It doesn't work like that. Do you understand me? When you come to learn God's word, you must come to learn, you must have a submission to God's word, that if I see something from God's word to be true, then it is true, and I'm wrong. There is no, let's find a balance between what I'm saying and what God's word is saying. There's no balance. All of the balance is in God's word. One of these is, I'm probably going to release a short video around that. All right? There is no balance. There's no balance to Bible doctrine and your view, all right? The only balance there is, is God's word. God's word itself is all the balance that it needs, all right? And so if you want to live a balanced life, live a God, God-filled life or God's word-filled life, it's that simple, all right? You don't try to find a safe spot or a sweet spot between your view or your opinion and what God's word says. No, you still do what God's word says, and that is all the balance that you need. Hallelujah. All right, so... We said you find correction in the word, all right. So a key part of learning God's word is being corrected. You cannot be discipled if you cannot be corrected. Is that simple? It's simply that you can't let God God's word and not be corrected. Simply that, all right. So you have to be corrected. And then beyond that, we also saw instruction in righteousness. And the word instruction there is the Greek word paideia, which means it means instruction, it means training, but it also majorly it means chastisement. Chastisement, all right, and we saw that the word was used or chastening. We saw that the word was used in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11. Uh, let's see, um, I'm not going to go into the places where it was used, but you see it in okay, Hebrews 12, sorry, Hebrews 12, 5 to 8, then Hebrews 12 and verse 11 for chastening, all right. It was also used in Ephesians 6 for parents gracing their child in the nurture of the Lord or in the training of the Lord. And so we said that the word instruction in righteousness there which means training the righteousness, all right, actually has a lot to do with chastening or correction or correction. So again, you see a double emphasis on correction. And let me just say this. You see, when you have, when you live in a world that is anti-God's word, all right, you live in a world where the primary, um, the way people think or the way people reason normally or the way people do their activities is normally anti-God's word. You definitely the teaching of God's word is going to be heavily corrective. All right, it's going to be heavily corrective because for a very long time, people have been exposed to what is not true, not just as per doctrinal error. In terms of just they've been all their life, they've done things the way the world does it. So naturally, 
when they come into church or when they come to learn the truth of God's word, everything is going to seem like a correction because they've been used to the opposite of God's word all their lives. That's it. And this is one of the reasons why you need to understand that to a, to a large extent, God's word is going to be offensive to, to a large extent. You see, I was thinking about something a while ago, how that when error has persisted for a long time, the truth of God's word will always seem like correction. Or it always seems like it is out for people. But that's not, that's not true. It, the issue is just that falsehood has been the most um, trending topic for a very long time. That's not what it is. So if you come and speak the truth, it's going to look like you're fighting or you're attacking people. But you're not. You're not speaking the truth. It's simply that. For example, if you've been in a place where, let me see, a very um, not so controversial topic, a place where, for example, people have said to receive the Holy Ghost, you have to fast and pray for 30, maybe 30 days or something like that. Now, you come and learn from the truth of God's word that the man who is saved have the, has the Holy Ghost in him. All right? Now, you, you don't have to be targeting anybody. The moment you come and say from God's word that, ah, the Bible says that he will, he will have believed has the Holy Ghost in him, what happens immediately? But what happens at the reason of that is that it begins to seem as though you are fighting with people. Now, are you fighting with people? No, you are not teaching the truth. But because for a long time, error has been perpetuated. All right, it's going to seem as though you are coming at people, they are very offensive. Okay, so I'm just saying this so that you understand that it's okay to step on some tools sometimes. All right, so far you know that you didn't teach God's word to step on tools, it's fine. And you understand, you can't, you can't be more. And I, I had this discussion with someone a while ago that it was a lady who I was speaking to, and I noticed that whenever we talk, she always likes to, you know, avoid offending people. You know, she doesn't want to be offensive. But you don't want to cause problems. You understand? He, you know, is very always keen on manner of delivery, how you say the words, so that people don't get offended, so on and so forth. And I mean, while I'm, I mean, anybody who knows how I teach knows that I try to be as very as cautious as possible with the kind of words I use, the examples I use, the nuances I use. But you see, one of the things you must learn is this: is that God's word is naturally offensive. And that's the truth. No matter, you, you, sometimes you'll be doing a huge disservice. Trying to water down God's word so it, so it doesn't come out as offensive as it should. It's the reality. People don't like to hear it, but if you don't believe the gospel, you go to hell. It's, it's, it's just what it is. You get now. We can do our best possible not to, you know, make that too loud, all right, or something. In fact, there's a way we even say that, you know, the gospel is good news, all right? So because it's good news, just tell people that God loves them, you know, that you want them to be saved and so on and so forth. And they should believe in the sacrifice of Jesus and they'll be saved. And that's true. But the truth is also that if they don't believe, they'll go to hell. And that's good news. Like, hey, okay. It is the, the news in itself that they'll go to hell is not good news. But the entire package of good news involves the fact that if they don't believe, they'll go to hell. And that's not the truth. So you need to understand that the message of the gospel in itself, to a very large extent, is an offensive message. All right. And so if you do, if you are trying to do your best to not make it come up as offensive, it's very likely that at some point you will water down the truth of the message just so that people can accept it. That's it. You cannot, you, and remember I said this to her, I said, if you were alive or you were around in Jesus' day, you would have had issues with him. I told her, I said, you would have had issues with him. Because if you were there, when Jesus, for example, a, a, someone who is about to, and who has someone just died in their family, come to meet Jesus, and Jesus tells the person, let the dead bury their dead. Chances are you will show Jesus on Twitter. And as I told her, 
because you look at him and say, what kind of insensitive person says things like this? Or maybe in the time when Peter, you know, rebuked Jesus, when Jesus said he was going to die, and he says, you know, um, far be it from you, Lord. All right. And then Jesus turns around and says, um, get thee behind me, Satan. All right. And then he calls Peter Satan directly. Chances are, if the lady was there, chances are she would have issues with Jesus as well. She would have. But that's the thing. You see, you must understand clearly the gospel is in itself offensive to an extent. That's the way it is. It's, some people will be offended. Do you understand? So now you don't go about trying to offend people, but what you also don't do is try to water the message so people will accept it. No. And why did I tell of this? I tell of this so you know that a huge part of the gospel is correction. That's what it is. A huge part of the gospel is correction. You can't be wiser than Jesus who lost who lost about you know six thousand or five thousand disciples in a day. You can't. You can't be in John six. After he had, you know, he had given them bread and fish, they came back, you know, they wanted to make him king. And then he says, labor not for the meat that perishes. And then he goes on to say, you know what? Um, if any man will not, um, will not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he has no part in me. Like, why, why do you have to talk like this? It was as though Jesus was intentionally trying to get them offended. But no, he just had to say the truth as it was. You either agree with it or you don't agree with it. But that was the truth you understand me? And so you must learn to build that fortitude in yourself. That if this is the truth, this is the truth. It doesn't matter who gets offended, it's what it is. I'm saying basically that um about you know the gospel and correction. And I was saying because we're going to get to a point very soon where the truth will be hard to speak in public. It's going to happen very, very soon. Particularly now when you know there is the idea of your truth and my truth, saying what makes me comfortable, so on and so forth. All right, there will be Sooner or later, particularly in a generation that you know likes to perpetrate what they believe to be their truth, despite um despite objective truth, they still want to shift you know the boundaries of truth to cater for their own excesses. The reality of it is, with an increasing culture like that, we are going to have to learn to speak the truth despite who it will offend. Do you understand? And that's just what it is. All right. We're just gonna to have to learn to speak the truth that way. Okay, so why did I tell that? I tell that to let you know, therefore, that a huge part or a major part of discipleship or of learning God's word is correction. So please put that in mind. All right, so um still moving on. So we've seen we saw seven verse three, verse 16, and then we moved on to Matthew 28 and verse 19. Please open your Bible there. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28 and Verse 19, 28, and verse 19. All right, start from verse 18. It says, And Jesus began to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And then we did a study, we did a study last week on the word power. All right, exousia. One of the things that we saw, the word exousia meaning authority, is that words must always be used in their context, in the context of their usage. So, um, for example, if you see two young guys on the streets of Lagos, or maybe two guys having a call on their phone, and then the guy says, Omo, the babe served me breakfast, so, or I mean, being Yoruba men, I served the break, I served the babe breakfast. So. Now, if some white dude was privy to that conversation, heard him say, ah, I served the babe breakfast, my look and say, Wow, such a kind young gentleman. All right, whereas. So, whereas he's talking about something else, okay? So, the context of every word. So, why a breakfast to a, <laughs> a let me see, 
a young Nigerian Yoruba guy is definitely very different from breakfast to of, of someone who probably has stayed in the US all his life with the same age. All right. So the usage of the word determines or the context of the word determines what it means. All right. And so, for example, when you see the word authority, you don't just quickly assume that every authority that is spoken about in scripture is authority over sicknesses and diseases. No. You don't jump into conclusions like that. You have to check the context of its usage. Check how the word is used. Check the usage of the word, the context. Okay, knowing the context, then you can now know what kind of authority is being spoken about. Another good example of that is baptism. We're going to see, we're going to do a study on baptism, communion, and the likes very soon. One of our meetings, whether Lagos or Ife, don't know yet. But one of the things you see also is that people's mistake with the word baptism is that everywhere they see the word baptism in scripture, they automatically imply water baptism. And whereas that's not the only baptism spoken about in scripture, we have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We have the baptism into, in fact, we have in First Corinthians 10, it says the Israelites were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. So we saw a baptism into a person, baptism into Moses, First Corinthians 10. So what does baptism mean? So it's important that you see that the context of the word determines the meaning of that word, all right? The context determines, it gives better idea into what the word is being, what the word is saying. So authority are saying in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And so we try to, you know, look at places where the word authority is used. Let's look at, let's just look at some examples again to remind ourselves. Look at um, Matthew 7 and verse 29. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29. After Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29, 7 verse 29 says, we start from verse 28. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended this saying, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine there is not the same word did that's Kalia. Actually, the word didache or didache is the word that means his manner of teaching or his manner of explanation of scripture. So he wasn't just talking about what he taught, it was talking about the way he explained scriptures. All right. Why? In verse 29, it says, For he taught them as one having authority and not as described. So now in this place, too. You cannot just jump and say the authority here is authority over sicknesses and diseases. Why? Because throughout this chapter in Matthew 7, Jesus didn't do any miracle. He did not. He was just teaching. He was teaching. And so by so by the time he was done with his teaching, and they say they marveled at his manner of teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as described. What would the authority refer to here? Here. It will be authority over sicknesses and diseases. Rather, it will be an authority that is shown in how we explain scripture. The word authority in Susia actually means a delegated authority or delegated um, um, delegated freedom of influence. All right, that, that's pretty much what it means. All right, the ability to act freely or the ability to act in a certain way. That's what Susia. All right, and it's just like the way, for example, the word soteria means salvation. All right, but it is not a Christian word, it's a Greek word. All right, so the word, the word salvation is not just used for the salvation that God gives us in Christ Jesus, it's actually a word that's also used for deliverance from prison, for example. It's a word that means to save, to save someone, to save something. So, if you, for example, a ghost was supposed to be killed, but then you rescue the ghost for whatever reason, hopefully because you care about the ghost and not because you want to kill it on your own. Now, you take the ghost and run away or something, you save that ghost, that's what area. All right, so the fact that the word is used in the Bible doesn't give it doesn't necessarily give it a spiritual implication. All right, and that's very important. In fact, that thing I just said is one of the major reasons why people make 
doctrinal errors. Not every, you know, the fact that a word is used in certain contexts a particular way, you don't generalize context that way. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not very, I'm not very keen on word study. And when I think word study, this is what I mean. When you, for example, you want to study on, you want to understand maybe the word baptism, baptism. And then what you just do is you just search the Bible for everywhere, but the word baptism was used. And then you now begin to, you know, um, put, you now begin to, you know, make meaning of it. They're going to, they're going to make mistakes that way. The best way to study portions of scripture, all right, or to study certain topics is to actually go to that. You get the context. It's not just about picking the verse where it was used throughout the Bible. All right. If you do that, what you're going to do is you're going to pick certain context of some words in certain places and use it in the wrong go in certain places. All right. What you are supposed to do instead is you, of course, you can look for the word. But what you do is wherever you see the word, you now get the entire context of the of that word. You can look maybe, for example, to just understand one word. Sometimes you have to look at the entire chapter. Sometimes to understand just one word, you have to look at the entire book. Sometimes it's necessarily like that. For example, I've told you, when you see the word gift in scripture, when you talk about <clears throat> the gifts of the spirit, the way Paul used gifts is different from the way Peter used gifts. Paul used gifts as charisma. When he was referring to the gifts of the Holy Ghost, all right, not the gift of salvation. Often that the gift of salvation was referred to Paul by Dori as Doria, but that's by the way. Now, if Paul often refers to it as charisma, meaning supernatural ability. So his focus when it came to the gifts of the spirit had to do more with you know supernatural ability or endowments given by the spirits. Peter, however, spoke of the gift of the spirits as Doria, which has to do more with the free, the free nature of the gift, how that the gift is given free, given free. So the way Peter presents the gift of the spirits is not the same way Paul presents the gift of the spirit. Even though it is the same word in the English gifts. So if you now look at, and you know the funny thing is, one of people's biggest problems with First Corinthians 12 actually comes from that idea of the word gift. So because they hear gifts of the Spirit, they believe it is something that they have to, you know, collect from God. It already gives them the ideology that it is a gift, like a parcel. Do you understand? And so because he calls it gifts of the Spirit, so you now have a an individualistic mindset about each of these gifts that you now have to ask about. Well, hopefully, well, like I think we are going to do a study on First Corinthians twelve in this series, actually. And you will now see that by just understanding that the word gift actually refers to endowments or ability, all right, endowments, abilities by the spirit. It therefore changes the mindset or the context you have. They are abilities by the spirit to the man, to the man who has the spirit. So you have, for example, in your spirit, you have tongues um, because they are diversities from the same spirits. So you have tongues, administration of um, tongues, prophecies, so on and so forth. All of the nine gifts of the spirit available in the spirit. They are not, don't look at them as gifts as per pastor that you have. Look at them as endowments, abilities by the Spirit of God. And so they are gifts not because, you know, they are part of the pastor that given to you. No, they are endowments by the Spirit to your mind. To your mind. So where are they? They are in the Spirit. Where is the Spirit? It's in you. 
So it's not something you are asking for. It's an endowment that you take a hold of from your spirit and exercise with your mind. So all of the information you need is present within your spirit. For example, the words of knowledge you need are present. You see, this will actually change how you play the of spirit. The moment I understood it, it changed my perspective in the of the spirit. So when I flow in, for example, words of knowledge, I am not asking God for a new information. I'm not trying to tell God to give me something new or to tell me something that, you know, I cannot hear until I cross over to some certain realms. No. All of the information I need is present within my spirit. All of the words of knowledge, the visions I need to see, so on and so forth, are present within my spirit. However, what do, what do I do when I want to flow in those things? All right? I give heed or I give expression to the spirit of God. I give expression to those abilities from my spirit to my mind that I can now effectively communicate them. So they are present in my spirit. My mind, of course, I have to now subject my mind to the expression of God's spirit that works in me. All right. And so by doing that, I now express those abilities from so when you hear gifts of the spirit, it's actually a gift from your spirit to your mind. It's not gifts from God to me. Of course, God gave it. That's true. How did he give it when he gave you the spirit? God did not have to give you tongues, intervention of tongues. Uh, he didn't have to give you all those things separately. All of those abilities, do not forget, he says there are diversities of gifts for the same spirit. The word diversity is there is diuretic. It means different things from the same hole. It's the, it's the kind of idea you have when you have the watermelon and then you cut maybe nine portions from the watermelon. All of it is still from the watermelon. That's it. So all of those gifts are from the same spirit. So don't just look at the gifts individually. Look at the spirit as a whole. That's, that's where you should focus on. Don't focus so much on the gift. Focus on the spirit. Because all of those gifts are present. Because at the end of the day, pay attention to this. If the spirit is not there, you can't function in any gift. That's the point. So it was never about the gift or the ability. It has always been about the spirit. The one who has the spirit has everything. It's that simple. Now, he may not be expressing everything because he doesn't know or because he has not given expression. But the reality of it is that the one who has been at everything, and it won't matter how much you want to flow in any gift, if you don't have the spirit, you cannot flow in any Because as I said before, the gifts are in the spirit. Okay? So what happens when you have the spirit? You now take from that spirit within you, all right? You put it upon you. That's actually what we mean by putting it upon you. You give expression to what is in your spirit. So every time when you pray in tongues, for example, that's the reason why you can pray in tongues as will. The reason you can pray in tongues as will is because you have that ability in your spirit. Every time when you want to pray in tongues, what do you do? You give expression to your spirit. So you take from your spirit to your mind. That's it. That's simply what it is. So, I mean, anyways, I don't have to do that. So I don't, I don't have to do that explanation so that I don't confuse people here. But that was not my teaching for today. All right. So back to Matthew 7, verse 28. So when he says that he thought as one having authority, now why is that what I did about gift there? What I was trying to let you see is that Paul's um submission about the gifts of the spirit and Peter's submission about the gift of the spirit, even though they use the same word gifts, the meaning of the word based on context had its differences. One had to do with ability and endowment, the other had to do with the free nature of the gift. That God gives freely, you don't have to pay for it. All right. So I tell you that to therefore let you see that words, therefore, even though similar, must always be used in their context. 
you must always see the word for the context of its usage. So now back to this now, Matthew the seven now from verse 28. So when he says that Jesus taught as one having authority, how do you teach as one having authority? Forget what you've always known about authority over sicknesses and diseases and so on and so forth. Just think about this. How can someone teach as one that has authority? It means he's bold when he's teaching. It means he's teaching a certain way. You understand? He's taking a verse. You know, the scribes ask him a question. The person asks him a question. And then he takes a question, takes it, you know, gives it, gives a particular perspective, answers it a particular way. And then they look at him and say, wow, this guy, is, he doesn't teach like them. He teaches like one that knows what he's saying. He knows what he's saying. He knows what he's doing. Do you understand me? So that is what we have here. Look at Matthew 8 and verse 9. Just after this, Matthew 7, the next chapter. Matthew 8, look at verse 9. Verse 9. We'll start from verse 8 for this too. Just to have a better understanding. This is the centurion speaking. He says, then the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof. He says, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And look at what he says in the next verse. He says, for I am a man under authority. I am a man under authority. He says, having soldiers under me, and I said to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servants, do this, and he does it. So now pay attention to this now. The word authority here is the Greek word exousia. Now, this is a centurion, a military guy. Interestingly, <laughs> well, anyways, let me know if we talk about that. But it's a centurion, right? Now, he says, I'm a man under authority. Is he saying, I'm a man under the authority, under authority above sickness? No. He's trying to say, I'm a man in the military. That's just what it is. I'm a man in the military. By, man not be, by me being under authority, just means, just as there are men above me, there are men below me. So, just as there are men who can order me, do this, do this, do this. I can also order some men to do certain things. That's just what he's saying. Simply. So authority doesn't always refer to charismatic authority. All right. It could refer to authority of scriptures, it could refer to military authority. The context determines the usage. So back to Matthew 28 now. Back to Matthew 28. Oh, Thank you, Father. Matthew 28. Now, in verse 18, again. So when he says, now all power or authority. In heaven and earth has been given to me. He now says, Go ye therefore and what teach all nations, or in some version says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. He says, Baptize them in the name of Father and Son of the Holy Ghost. Now, the point is this is that as I told you, the context determines the word. So when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, these are questions you must begin to ask yourself. What authority did Jesus receive upon the resurrection from the dead? That he did not have before, because that's the only way this can make sense. Jesus clearly had authority over sicknesses and diseases before he died. I told you, for example, the, um, I told you, for example, the demons he casted out out of the madman or the madman in some um, um, renditions, out of them into a head of swine. All right. So clearly, he casted out demons. Once again, one time he was teaching in the synagogue, and a demon spoke out, and he casted out the demon. So he clearly had been exercising authority over sicknesses and diseases before he died and before he rose again. All right. So the authority here can't have been speaking about that. All right. And so based on what I said about context determining the meaning of the word, you now have to pay attention to the context of its usage here. All right. What authority is he speaking about? All right. So he says that after telling you all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, he now says, Go ye therefore. All right, and preach the gospel to every nation, or go in therefore and make disciples of every nation. 
All right. So that authority has a lot to do with men being able to preach the gospel. That's it. You know, we don't clearly know what the authority is yet, but one thing is clear about this authority, it has a lot to do with what? With men being able to preach the gospel and men being able to make disciples of every nation. They are together. So now, let's do a little bit more study to understand what exactly it's saying. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now, I know you might be wondering, what exactly does this have to do with tongues by the Spirit? Like, I thought we are learning about tongues. Why would you know this study? Well, again, because, first of all, Bible doctrine, you have to pay attention to details. You don't just skip things. I know I've spoken about these things. I thought about these things last week. But there are some things that I noticed that they could be easily mistaken. And so you have to say them again. All right? I told you, you don't rush when it comes to teaching Bible. You don't rush. You don't say, ah, I have to finish this thing today. Mm-mm. People's understanding is more important than your ability to cover so many topics. All right. It doesn't matter how many topics I know or how many things I know. If I cannot effectively communicate it to you easily, then I can't, I'm not doing my work as a teacher well. All right. So that's why we're taking a time to go after, to go over these things one after the other. All right. Or again, basically to best conviction. All right. So let's continue. Matthew 16. We'll start from verse 16. It says, um, okay, it's not from verse, actually from verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Sarah Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And you know what it says? It says, um, but and Simon Peter answered and said, thou art Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon, for Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee. He says, but my father, which is in heaven. He says, and I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then I will give unto thee the kingdoms, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charge ye his disciples that he should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now pay attention to this. Jesus speaks about the church here, or the building of the church here. And then he says, um, upon the resurrection, he says that I will give unto thee the kingdoms of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. And I said, you know, we just read this verse, and automatically we just say, Jesus has said, you know, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever we lose on earth will be lost in heaven. So then when he was saying, neighbor, as we bind things today, they will be bound in heaven. And as we lose things today, they will be lost in heaven. You know, so every you know, every demon from my father's house, everything is like tormenting me. But I lose you. I mean, my pastor made a joke about this. You know, how that a lot of times people don't even know what they are praying about. Like they don't even hear themselves. For example, you hear people pray, and you be hearing, I bind, I lose, I bind, I lose, I bind. <laughs> the question is, are you binding <laughs> or are you losing? Which one exactly are you doing right now? That and it just goes to tell you a lot, a lot of times people just pray because they are going to pray, they don't really pay attention to what they are praying about. Just as also, we don't sometimes you just have to sit down critically to ask questions. I remember when I was a, when I was very young, like a lot younger, before I even began to learn God's word. One day I was just like sitting, I was talking to an older lady, right? I can remember that it was on the road. I don't know, I think we were going to buy something, and I was just annoyed about how. Church services were usually unnecessarily long, in my opinion, anyway. They were just long. And that day, I just asked her something. I said, Wait. 
I said, how come we've always been binding demons and binding demons and binding them? How come they've not gone? What what about them makes them just stay like this? It just means because like people always tell me that Jesus power is power, that Jesus power is above everybody. So if Jesus power is above everybody, why am I always like every Sunday is the same prayer about demons that we bind them? So why like why are they still around? If we are supposed to use the prayer, pray just my own prayer alone. Forget my mommy's prayer that has even that she has even spent longer years in the face than me. And plus, you also told us that Jesus answers or God answers the prayer of young people more than older people. And I feel like there are some of you that believe this here. You know, all these funny superstitions. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that. All right. So, you know, I tell you that Jesus answers the prayer of young people more than older people. So even when I was young too, I prayed it. That every demon, you know, die or this thing and so on and so forth. No, every Sunday we're always praying about so I say, ah, can't we just even use faith to believe one day that ah, all these demons are gone? Let's just even believe. That these demons are gone, you know, and so you just realize a lot of times you pay things that we don't pay attention to. For example, you can't pray that a demon should die, it's a demon, it's a spirit. Please don't die. <laughs> you just that you, you can't you can't pray for a demon to die, you can't bind the demon, it's not in your place, too. There was never any place in scripture where a believer bound bound a demon by prayer. Do you realize that even through scriptures, Jesus did not, Jesus casted demons out. Jesus never bound, uh, bound a demon and sent the demon to hell. Why? Because it's not their time yet. Do you understand? There's going to be a time when they will be bound, they will be sent to hell alongside the devil. But now is not their time. So you need to understand. So you need to inform your knowledge of scripture with scripture. And you remember what I said about how Jesus usually explains scriptures. You don't just pick a verse and just talk. That's not how it's done. You have to learn to look through different portions of scripture and see the consistency of doctrine about. Uh, among those things, if this thing is saying this here, then how does it affect what is said here and here and here and here? That's how you think when it comes to Bible. All right. So now it says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth will be used in heaven. And as I said before, if this is talking about prayer, the question you ask yourself is this: were people not praying before now, before this time? Were people not praying and receiving answers? Of course they were. For example, Elijah, the man Elijah, he prayed that first of all it will not rain, and it's not rain. And after that, again, after three and a half years, he prayed that it could rain. And it's rain, simple. What's the better way of bound on earth is bound in heaven? And lose on earth is lose in heaven than that. It's <laughs> just that. Or when he, for example, called down fire from heaven and he came down. All right. And even beyond this, we already we had the disciples perform miracles before Jesus died. For example, Luke 10, when they came back and said, Master, the demons were subject to what's in your name. So they were already even casting out demons before Jesus died. Imagine. So clearly, this binding on earth and bounding in heaven, losing on earth and losing in heaven, has nothing to do with, or it is not primarily speaking about authority over demons and diseases. In fact, we're not talking about prayer. So what you don't do when it comes to scripture is just infuse what you feel it is or what it looks like to be. You have to learn to pay attention. Look through scripture and pay attention. What is he speaking about? So Matthew 16 Oh, yeah, that's what we're looking at right now. Matthew 16, Jesus is talking about what will happen in his resurrection, which is the building of the church. He says, I will give unto you the keys. Can you see that? I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it's speaking about authority. All right? Keys. The word keys there, keys, is a word that metaphorically refers to authority. You find Jesus also use that word in Revelation 1, verse 18, when he says, I have the keys of death and hell. Meaning I have authority over death and hell. So, key is the word that is symbolic for authority, all right? So, now, the question now, so we see Matthew 16, all right? So, imagine if, for example, you were just like Jesus' disciples, 
In Matthew 16, before he dies, he already tells you about his resurrection and tells you that, see, in the resurrection, all right, uh, you are going to receive the keys of the, the gates of heaven or the keys of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth is lose in heaven. Already, those disciples have to already know that this thing can be referring to sickness and diseases. Because even as I right now, before he has died, I, I have already been seeing miracles. I'm already casting out sicknesses and diseases. I'm already casting out demons. So that can be referring to it. So they already so there would have been something that was already programmed in their mindset about the resurrection. All right. So look at it through the lens of the disciples before the resurrection and then after the resurrection. Now, after the resurrection, now Jesus now comes on the scene and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Right? What authority were they expecting? In the resurrection, the authority of whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth is lost in heaven. Good. Now, immediately after that, he now goes on to say, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Or go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. What this would mean is that the command Jesus gives of going to preach the gospel to every nation or going to make disciples to every, with, um, uh, making, making disciples of every nation has a lot to do with the binding on earth and binding in heaven, losing on earth and losing in heaven. Why? Because one thing common with the both of them is authority. Jesus already said in Matthew 16, I will receive a particular, I will receive an authority to give you. I will give you an authority, a particular authority when I resurrect from the dead. Now we resurrect from the dead and now says, you know what? That authority is present now. Go and make disciples of every nation. What does that let you see? That that authority has to do with the preaching of the gospel, and the making of disciples of every nation. All right? Now, let's look at another. Now, there's something I've told you about before, that when it comes to scripture, particularly in the four gospels, there's something called collaborative study. Collaborative study. And what does collaborative study mean? It means you have to learn to look through, when you see an account in the four gospels, you have to learn through to look through other evidences of that account in the rest of the four gospels. Why? Because the four Gospels are basically four narrations of the same event. Four narrations of the same event. So it's what you see. So if, for example, um, if, for example, somebody asks of a particular occurrence that happened during our last meeting in Ilife, all right? If someone asks about uh, that occurrence, chances are that if four of us were to speak about it, four of us would have different views about that same occurrence. It's possible that some things will differ from place from person to person, but the most important detail will still stand. That's it. That's how these things work. So maybe, or maybe, for example, you witness a fight, and at the end of the day, maybe in the fight, you witness somebody beat somebody. If four people are supposed to narrate that event to someone else, chances are that they might lose some details of when somebody gave an uppercut, or when somebody gave a jab, or when somebody maybe carried somebody. But one thing will be clear after the four of them are done, you'll be able to clearly know who beat who. Do you understand? The, the way they will have a problem is if the person now says, if the person who was, if the, one of the persons now say that the person who was beaten is actually the one who beats. Do you understand? Then you now say, ah, no, you're saying rubbish. You are not there. But at the end of the day, even if there are differences in the things they said because of their views and so on and so forth, or things that they could have forgotten, the reality of it will still be that the most important detail will still be kept so that is how to approach corroborative study in the four gospels that at the end of the day even though you might see some slight differences maybe in a place you hear there were two there were two madmen and that place you said it was just one madman or stuff like that that's not the most important detail at the end of the day the most important detail is that 
demons were cast out into a head of swine. Just that's the only thing. Whether it was one man or two, it doesn't affect anybody. Do you understand me? So that's how to. So that's how to pay attention when people talk about maybe saying the Bible is inaccurate. It, it just if the Bible was a hundred percent accurate, particularly the four gospels. I've told you guys before. If the four gospels were a hundred percent accurate, like they were the same thing, you have more reason to not believe it than right now. Because how is it possible that four men wrote accounts of the same thing who had no idea? They did not know when each of them were writing it. They had no idea that these books were still going to be brought together to be compared. They wrote it at different points and at different places. And by the time you bring it together, it is 100% the same thing. Same words used, same examples. Say, ah, no, they copied themselves. It's not possible. Do you understand? So that's how to approach corroborative studies. So why did I say all of that? Let's do a corroborative study of what happened in Matthew 28. All right. By corroborative study, I mean let us look at another account in the four gospels where the Matthew 28, um, where the Matthew 28 encounter was spoken about. All right. So let's look at, for example, the book of Luke. Go to Luke. Or before Luke, go to Mark. Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, we start from verse 14. Mark 16 from verse 14. It says, Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven and they sat at meat. He appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and then <clears throat> and upbraided them with their own belief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now let's continue. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. He now says, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name, shall cast out devils, so on and so forth. But pay attention to the fact that we see a corroboration of Matthew 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go into the world and make disciples of every nation. Go into the world, preach to um, go into the world um, uh, and make disciples of every nation. Now, a corroborative um evidence of that that you see in the book of mark it's a different statement but the same thing verse 15 going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he that believes and is baptized shall be saved he that believes not shall be done remember that in matthew 28 he puts it as um going to the world and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the father and the son of the holy ghost so it's not the same exact statement but the reality of it is that the most important details are preserved. The preaching of the gospel, baptism in the name of Jesus. All right? Salvation occurring as a reason of that. All right? So this is the corroborative evidence for Matthew 28. Look at Luke. The book of Luke. And notice how that these things happened after Jesus' resurrection. Very important. That's how to corroborate things as well. The time matters. Because you cannot be corroborating what happened after the resurrection with what happened before the resurrection. It doesn't work that way. You have to ensure that it is the same event but different accounts. So, Luke. Luke 24. Luke 24. And verse... Now, look at something. Let me just show you a way to identify corroborative evidence. Now, if you open Luke 24, the entirety of Luke 24 is after the resurrection. But if you go and use Luke 24 from verse 13, where he met two men on the way to Emmaus, you cannot use that as corroborative evidence with Matthew 28 and verse 19. Why? Because the audience are different. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, he clearly tells you that he was speaking to his disciples, that the 12 or the apostles. All right. What um, Luke 24 in verse 
verse 13, those people were two people on the road to Emmaus. So even though the two events were after the resurrection, they cannot be corroborative evidence because the audiences are not similar. Do you understand? So this is, you need to know, Bible reading is or Bible study. It's not, it's not just a walk in the park. Do you understand? It's not, you don't just open the Bible and you just, um, just read and be like, no, you need to understand, first of all, who is speaking, who is the person speaking to, what was the reason for their conversation. There are some things, for example, that it's a conversational kind of thing. For example, when you find the um, 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 you find the scribes and Pharisees question the apostles, and then the apostles now respond with the sermon. Oftentimes than not, the sermon will have a lot to do with the question that they were asked. The presentation of the sermon will have a lot to do with the question that we, they were asked. The way the sermon is presented oftentimes also have a lot to do with the audience that asks it. For example, in Acts, I think Acts 14 now, when Paul was in Athens in Greece, and then he, he gave a sermon, all right, on the, he gave a sermon on the gospel. You would notice that his approach to that sermon was very different from the way we would normally approach a sermon to people who believed in the existence of God, or better still, who believed in the scriptures. Paul would normally go through, you know, the entire Old Testament scriptures to those people. But for the people in Athens in Greece, you would notice how that he particularly went into their own poetry. He went into their culture to explain to them. Why? Because the audience matters a lot in the delivery. The people you are speaking to matter, matters when it comes to what you are saying. All right? So you will not make the best out of those um, sermons or best out of understanding your Bible if you cannot understand the people to whom it is written to, or the people to who were the direct recipients or the direct audience of what was being said, all right? So this is how to study the Bible. You don't just read. Don't, don't just read and read. No. Who was he talking to? Who was talking? Why was he talking? Why did this conversation come up? Why did he use this kind of words? Why did he use this kind of phrases? Why did he approach it from this perspective? So on and so forth. That's how to study. So Luke 24, another corroborative evidence. Verse, look at verse... 44. Okay, let's let's start from coming. Let, let's start from verse from verse 31. Okay, let's start from verse 31. Now, this was after Jesus had broken bread with the two on the road to him out, he had broken bread, he vanished from their eyes. They knew that oh, this was Jesus. Now pay attention to this. He says. In verse 32, and he said once another, Did our hearts not born within us while he talked with us by the way? He says, And while he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as the Lord spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, said unto them, Peace be unto you. So Jesus, so Jesus appears now to the eleven together with those two on the road to Emmaus. So now we have an idea that they are at least getting there. Now pay attention. He says, "Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Undo me and see, for his spirit has no flesh and blood." Then he continues. Now look at verse forty-six. So after he has, you know, explained to them the scripture, verse forty-six he says, "Then he said unto them, Does it is written, and does it behold Christ?" To suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now pay attention to verse 47. And that repentance 
and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Can you see again? He talks about preaching. The, so you see again preaching. We've seen Matthew 28, 19, Luke, uh, Matthew 28, verse 19, Mark 16, verse 15. Now again, we're seeing Luke 24. We see preaching. He says that preaching and um and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. All right. What is the remission of sins? All right. How is a man's sin forgiven? By the gift of salvation. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, we also find it in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. He says, In him we have received repentance through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, sorry, the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So, as a reason of the work of salvation, a man who has received the work of salvation, all right, has received the forgiveness of sins. So, the preaching of remission of sins is actually the preaching of the message of salvation or the preaching of the gospel. And repentance, which is the word metanoia, it just means to turn your mind, all right? To turn your mind. Repentance is not fundamentally changing how you behave. It actually is primarily changing your mind. Metanoia is the word gotten from meta, which is to change, and nous, which is the mind, all right? So it means to change the mind. That's what repentance is. So he's saying that repentance, the changing of the mind, how do you expect to change your mind? Change your mind from what you do, from the laws, from your wicked ways to the gospel. By you changing your mind to the gospel, you've received salvation, which is the forgiveness of sin. So can you see that? So once again, we see a collaborative evidence for the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. So repentance and remission of sins will be preached in his name. Can you see name again coming in here? Name. Don't forget, we've, we've seen baptizing them in the name of the Father. Name consistently. We see in Mark 16 verse 17, these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They will cast out their hopes. So even though the places where they were used might not necessarily be the same, you know what I said about various accounts of the same events, you would always see certain things that are similar. The preaching of the gospel, all right? The preaching of the gospel, the use of name, all right? So we've seen that. Now let's move to verse, uh, to John now. John. John has the most exhaustive, John has the most exhaustive encounter after the resurrection. So John 20, look at John 20 and verse 21. Verse 21. So this is also after the resurrection, the same audience, the apostles or the disciples, after the resurrection. All right, now pay attention to this. He now says, so don't forget, this is a corroborative evidence to what we have in Matthew 28 and verse 19. So now pay attention. He says, then said Jesus to them again, from verse 21, he says, Peace be unto you, as my father has sent me, even so I send you. He says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And verse 23, Whosoever sins you remit, now pay attention to this. He says, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, <laughs> unless you pay attention to these statements, you will not realize that this is actually the same thing that was being said in Matthew 28 and verse 19. The way you will know that this is the same thing is that do not forget what the way Luke puts it. Luke said repentance and remission of sins will be preached in his name. So meaning the preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the remission of sins. 
That's what it is. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of remission of sins. When I preach that salvation has been made available to mankind, what am I preaching? I'm preaching the remission of sins. So when he says in John 20 and verse 23 that whosoever sins you remit are remitted, whosoever sins you retain are retained. And I showed you last week that the word remit there is the Greek word afiemi. Is the Greek word afiemi, which means to let go, to release. It is the word from which the Greek word aphesis is found. Now, in Luke 24, when it says, the, and that repentance and remission of sins, the word remission in Luke 24 is the word aphesis. So they are the same Greek word. So when you see that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, it is the same thing when he's saying that whosoever says you remit and remitted. In other words, it's just putting one in an active statement, putting the other in sort of a recorded passive statement. So if I say, for example, that, um, see, whoever you forgive is forgiven. But then I now say also that, you know what, go out and tell people about the forgiveness that is available. All I've done is just to present the same thing in two ways. One of it is an active statement. The other is a sort of passive statement, but it's still the same thing. So Luke 24 and John, Luke 24 and John 20 are pretty much the same, all right? In the fact that Luke 24 says repentance and remission of sins. John 20 says, whosoever sins you remit is remitted. Whosoever sins you retain is retained. And I, tell, I told you also how that the word retain there is the Greek word kratio. Kratio. It means to hold on to it. Now, how do you remit people's sins and how do you hold on to people's sins? By the preaching of the gospel. When you preach the gospel, for example, to a man, do you realize, let me just say this, by the way, do you realize that every time when you go to preach the gospel to men, you are you are not just, um, what's the word to use now? You are not just rescuing them. You are also a judgment to them. And I'm going to explain. By preaching the gospel to them, if they receive it, it's salvation, and they are saved. So you've rescued them. But if they don't receive it, what just happened? That's eternal damnation. So you judge them. That's the reality. One is active, the other is passive. But the both of them are happening. Look at, for example, let me just show you something. John 16, go there. We're going to come back here to John 20. John chapter 16. John 16 and verse... John chapter 16, look at from verse 8. Verse 8. Or let's start from verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Is the experience for you that I go away. He says, For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. He says, But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now pay attention in verse 8. He says, And when he is coming, he will prove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my father, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. So can you see that the same person will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? Sin because they do not believe. Righteousness because I go to my father and you will see me no more. That's how the gift of righteousness is made available. And of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So when you go to present the gospel, that's why that's, you know, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18 says that for the preaching of the gospel to them which are saved, um, to them which do not believe is foolishness, but to us which are saved, it is the power of God. So the same gospel is foolishness to some, and to some it is the power of God. Do you understand me? So that's the reason why when you say the gospel is good news, it has a context. The gospel is not, 
if if you mean good news in the sense that it is too good to be true, that's not the entirety of the gospel. That's not it. The, the reality of it is the gospel is good news to the one who is saved in that your context. Because also, and let me just say this in passing, you see, in those days, when you say good news, I know I've always spoken about learning to use words according to cultural context. Good news in those days, and hopefully one of these days we're going to study on it very well. Good news in those days, all right, refers to the news of a kingdom. The news of a kingdom. So when you speak about good news in those days, you're not just saying good news that is nice. That's not just what it is. It is the news of the kingdom, the news of the proclamation of the kingdom. That's what good news means. All right. And so it's it's about so when you hear good news in terms of the gospel, it's not so much about a news that feels good. No, that's not the point. It's actually about a news of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's it. So when Jesus says, Go and preach the gospel to every creature, he's saying, Go and preach the gospel, go and preach a new kingdom. Or the message of a new kingdom to people. The kingdom of God is now made available. This will not make you understand why, when Jesus said this, the first thing that came to your mind in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, he said, Ah, will you again at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because now that we are telling us to go and proclaim the message of a particular kingdom, are you saying that? Just like, are you now saying that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel once again? And then he said, It is not of you to know the times and seasons that God has put in his own hands, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem. So he redirects their mind again that this kingdom I'm speaking about is not one that is necessarily physical like Israel. It's one that's propagated by the preaching of the gospel. All right? So why did I say all of that? I said all of that for you to know that when you see the word good news, for example, it doesn't if the idea of good news you have is something that is nice, it doesn't entirely encapsulate the gospel. The gospel, the gospel cannot be good news to a man who rejects it. He is going to hell. That's not nice to hear. Do you understand? So you cannot just say, ah, the gospel is good news. That's not true. Just like, calm down, parabole. And this is the reason why Bible doctrine, you don't rush it. You don't just jump. You don't just say, ah, it's good news, it's good news. It is good news to the person who has believed. To the person who has not believed, it is judgment. All right. So now back to uh to John chapter 20 now. Where we were, we go round up now. We just have a few minutes left. John 20. So now in verse 21, or oh, sorry, verse 23, when he says, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Is it so the way you have to look at it now is that is it that the disciples in themselves are intentionally retaining people's sins, or it is that because when you present the message, a man can either believe the message and receive forgiveness of sins or not believe the message and so, by doing so, not receive the forgiveness of sins. Just that, that is what he's speaking about. So that's how you have to see it. That whenever I go to preach the gospel to a man, all right, I am not just only a savior to him in that sense. I'm also a judgment to him. If he receives the gospel, he is judged as righteous, his sins are forgiven. If he doesn't receive the gospel and is obstinate to the reception of the gospel, I've also judged him as condemned. That's it. Look at what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. 
but that the world through him might have life. He says, he that believes on the Son has life, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So, <laughs> condemnation, just as eternal life is not something that you receive in the resurrection. Just as when you believe the gospel, you receive eternal life. He who does not believe the Son is condemned already. So, when the gospel is presented to you, both salvation and condemnation are made available. You believe the gospel, you come into salvation. You reject the gospel, you come into condemnation. Within the gospel is that two-edged sword. That's it. So, so you understand, therefore, ah, let me see. There's a bit of, so, this actually is what comes into play when we speak of the wrath of God. When we speak of the wrath of God. The wrath of God, and I'm just going to say this act, you know, by the way. The wrath of God is not something that God actively does. The wrath of God is the repercussion of man's rejection of God. When a man has decided to stay away from God, he is now in the wrath of God. Not because God is necessarily angry with him, but that he has chosen to stay away from God's provision of salvation. That is the wrath of God. But that's just by the way. Now, let's just finish up in John chapter 20, rounding everything up. So, John 20, verse 23, he says, Whosoever sins you remit are remitted, and whosoever sins you retain are retained. How can this happen by the preaching of the gospel? Now, why did I do everything I did so far? I did everything to just let you see that what you have in Matthew 28 and verse 19 is the same thing that you have in John chapter 20 and verse 23. So, another way you can see Matthew 28 and verse 19 is Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I'm giving you that authority. Whatever sins you remit are remitted. Whatever sins you retain are retained is one and the same. It is the same thing with go ye therefore and preach the gospel to every creature, or go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. It's the same thing as whosoever sins you remit are remitted, whosoever sins you retain are retained. Why? Because now you have received authority. Not necessarily, not just the authority over sicknesses and diseases, but the authority to do what? To give life to men. That's what you receive. And that is what it means by whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth is lose in heaven. What was it referring to by binding and losing? They are sins. They are sins. Remission. Live. Forgive. Release. Together. Retain. Hold on to. That's what it means by whatever you bind. What, so what's the binding? The retaining of sins. What is the losing? The forgiveness of sins. The remission. The freedom from sins. So when he says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you lose on earth is lose in heaven. Is he speaking about demons or sicknesses and diseases? No, that's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the loosening of men from their sins and the binding of men to their sins. By what? By the proclamation of the gospel. Glory to Jesus. Hallelujah. So we in the resurrection have received the authority to bind and lose. But is it just the binding and losing of sicknesses and diseases? No. No, that's not, that's not just what it is. Glory to Jesus, we can do those things. Glory to Jesus, we can cast out devils. Glory to Jesus, you know, we can cast out sicknesses and diseases. We've seen tons of that, tons of the miracles, tons of miracles in our meetings. We've seen those things. Of course, we can't say that they don't exist. We can't say that they're not happening through us. But that's not what he's talking about here. What is he speaking about here? He's telling you that in the resurrection, he has received an authority over the gates of death and hell. That men can now be released from hell. They can be released from eternal damnation with the devil. You see, already that is what man is doing for. That's what man, that's the path that man is already on. Normally. 
when you bring salvation to him, you just giving him, you just giving him an escape route. So the gospel didn't suddenly provide the way to hell for man. No, the man was already on his way to hell. The gospel just provided the way out. Just that. And so when the man decides not to receive it, what what does he do? He has decided to doom himself eternally. He has decided to stay on the way of eternal doom. Simply what it is. That's not what it is. So we have received in the new creation. We have received the ability to bind and to lose. What are we able to bind and lose? We're able to bind and lose things for men. And by the preaching of the gospel, those who believe it are forgiven of their sins, repentance and remission of sins. And those who don't, their things are reclaimed unto them. Glory to Jesus. Don't give God thanks wherever you are. Give him praise. Give him praise. Give him praise. For this authority that we have received in the resurrection, we've been made life givers. That's what we are now. We've been made life givers. Men who can walk together in partnership with God to see his plans and purpose on the earth fulfilled. Glory to Jesus. Father, we thank you. Father, we give you praise. We thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Glory to Jesus. Jesus, mighty name, we have prayed. Amen. So our God and our Father, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Father, for light and insight, revelation and illumination in your word. Pray, Father, that as the reason of this, we are strengthened to walk even more in your plans and purposes for our lives. That we take the message of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, much more seriously, even to a lost, dying, and perverse generation. That in the name of Jesus, we see more men whose sins are forgiven them as a reason of the preaching of the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you for listening. We're sure that it was an amazing time. For questions and inquiries, reach out to us on carysoul.bb at gmail.com. We call you blessed.